everybody, it's Brad from the Salvage Title Podcast here for part two of our series reflecting on the cars, crossovers, trucks, SUVs, and more uh, that came out in the inter-recessionary period uh, between 2008 and 2020. Uh, we just had it declared uh, earlier this week. Uh, we're recording Tuesday, June 9th here, uh, that the recession actually started back in February of 2020, uh, which ties into when, I think it's like, what, fall of 2008-ish, I think is when the declaration was for that one. So uh, just kind of reflecting on some of the things that came out in that time. You know, we had the big spike in gas prices. Obviously, a lot of people were out of work and couldn't get car loans or didn't have enough money to get car loans. And the market has really shifted from, you know, cheap, affordable family sedans uh, to small uh, luxury cars, now to crossovers of every size and shape from every brand under the sun. And uh, the first episode that came out yesterday, we talked about some of the surprises and disappointments from the era, um, just kind of touching on a few things here and there that I thought were, at the very least, interesting and worth discussing, um, but maybe might not have qualified for a best or worst vehicle uh, in that time frame. So today, uh, we'll just kick things off, starting with some of the worst vehicles from 2008 to 2020. And uh, this is one that uh, some of Car Twitter has talked at length about. It's one that I don't really believe that I've seen many of. I don't really recall much about it. Um, but I'm still kind of curious as to what it would be like to drive. And that is, of course, uh, the 2009 to 2011 Lexus HS 250H. Uh, now, if you don't recall what the car was, uh, the best way you could kind of describe it is a slightly larger and less fuel-efficient Toyota Prius. Uh, we were at a time... Uh, right around then, just kind of really kicking into high gear with that recession where uh, Lexus thought that they could, you know, find a reasonable market for people who wanted to buy something that was fuel efficient, something that was better for the environment, but also maintain a luxury uh, status and design. And, you know, there had been a long track record, especially with celebrities in, you know, Los Angeles and in many other parts of the country who had been buying Priuses uh, because of the ecological footprint being much better for that car compared to, a well, Corolla or Camry or whatever else. And uh, the HS250H was meant to be just that logical step beyond. So it has the same chassis that was shared with the Camry, the Corolla, the RAV4, uh, and a couple of other vehicles. And they used the basically the powertrain from the Toyota Camry hybrid, but put it in a car that was closer to the size of the Prius. So it had more power, a little more prestige uh, than that old 1.8 liter unit that's in the Prius. They fitted it with uh, low-profile, wider-width tires to give the car a little bit more of a handling capability uh, to make it drive more like a regular car. And obviously, it being a Lexus, it had a lot of luxury appointments uh, inside the vehicle. Now, uh, at this point in time, I think we were right around the launch of the third-generation Prius. Uh, we're just coming out of the second. And this third-generation Prius, you know, in some trims was able to get as much as like 50 miles per gallon uh, on average, which is, you know, still today quite good. I think the Prius, the well, not the Prius Prime, not the plug-in one, but the, the lower trim, I, I don't know, the Prius ranges are all weird these days. That one I think gets 52 or 53 miles per gallon, somewhere around there. I think the Hyundai Ioniq is somewhere around there as well. So, if, you know, for a car for more than a decade ago doing that, that's pretty darn good. But the HS, on the other hand, barely got 35 miles per gallon. And it was basically rated at 34, 36 or something like that. So no matter how you drove it in the city or on the highway, you were going to get the same amount. And you know, in general, 35 miles per gallon really isn't much to scoff at, especially these days with crossovers and SUVs, again, being the popular thing that, you know, struggle to get close to 27 to 30 miles per gallon. Uh, I have to say overall, you know, Again, the car, not particularly impressive uh, in terms of its capability, but, you know, not the worst thing in the world either. 
The other weird thing was the size of the car, uh, it being kind of between the size of a Prius and like a Lexus ES. Uh, it was a very strange size. It was only a little bit bigger than a Corolla, but not quite the size of a Camry. And so, you know, the front seats are pretty comfortable. I don't remember the back seats really at all being a thing. Uh, you know, the materials inside were pretty nice. They were pretty typical Toyota Lexus quality bits uh, that, you know, I don't know. This was the era in Toyota that I think left a lot of room for expectations uh, to not be met in many of their vehicles. So you had some Toyotas that were really good and you had some that were really bad. And I think this Lexus was kind of somewhere in the middle. Now, that being said, I do remember the seats being comfortable in one of the ones that I sat in. But other than that, I can't recall a single thing about this car. And overall, I think that's the general way that a lot of people look at this thing as that on the one hand, you know, this is a car that was meant to cater to a very specific crowd of people, and yet it didn't have the eco-credentials to do that. Um, this was a car that was meant to maybe bring people in from the fold from Toyota uh, to bring them under the Lexus banner because people had been asking for a nice, nicer Prius, and that also didn't do the job. Uh, this was a car that was meant to start a revolution among luxury automakers and have them build moderately sized, extremely fuel efficient vehicles. And that also didn't happen. And, you know, it's a car that was meant to drive more like a car and less like a hybrid. And that also didn't happen. And I think the only reason to really put the HS250H on this list is just because it was an abject failure at everything that it tried to be. Uh, you know, they, they couldn't price it right, they couldn't package it right, they couldn't sell it right, uh, and in the end, we only had it for those three short years, 09, 2010, and 2011. Uh, what's interesting to also note about this is that here in the U.S., while it was a massive failure, I think they sold less than 200,000 units total in those three years, which, you know, for Toyota, that's not many. Uh, for some car companies, you know, that's still fairly healthy. Uh, but in Japan, they sold significantly more. For whatever reason, this car uh, really, I'm going to use the words, latched on to that populace, to that market. Uh, and they continued to sell the car for several more years after uh, it had been discontinued in the United States. And it got uh, a design upgrade to keep it uh, in part and parcel with the way that the Lexus uh, design language was moving. Uh, and in the end, you know, as much as it was like a dreadfully boring car to drive, that's what every review that I have read has described it as, just completely without emotion, soulless, uh, just boring, like the kind of thing that would put you to sleep behind the wheel. Uh, there's also a part of me that goes, that's kind of a nice thing these days. Uh, these cars, at least based on a quick look over of Auto Trader a week or two ago. Um, all of them are selling between eight and $13,000. Most of them have right around 100,000 miles or less on them. Uh, they look like they've been pretty meticulously maintained over the 10 years of their life. Uh, I will say this, the leather seats seem to be holding up quite well in this car uh, versus a lot of other comparable Lexi and Toyota of that era. And that's sometimes a very good thing. Uh, you know, dollar for dollar, given the reliability of that powertrain as it is related to what's inside the Camry hybrid. I don't think that's a horrible buy for 10 grand, especially if you've got a longer commute where you can maintain that, you know, 35 miles per gallon and you do some city driving. Again, not the worst thing in the world, but, you know, at the same time, there are other cars that are available for less money that can get significantly better fuel mileage out on the highway. And, you know, it all kind of depends on what you want and what you want to do. As much as I do believe that this is one of the worst cars of this time frame, just because it just didn't hit the mark in any respect and was just such a terrible car to drive, there's still a part of me that goes, you know, if I had some dollars here on, on a bed or on a desk or wherever to start buying weird cars to put in my museum to drive once in a while, uh, I think the HS250H would be pretty high on my list just because it is such a weirdly unique car that uh, to some extent might have been misunderstood, but it's still, still a bad car. 
So next on the list of bad cars is one that uh, I didn't really realize how bad it was until uh, hearing some people talk about it. Uh, so specifically, it's the 2009 to 2017 Chevrolet Equinox. Now, growing up in a GM family here in Michigan, it's sacrilege to say anything bad about any GM product at any point in time. Uh, but the truth of the matter is this Equinox is particularly bad just because it, hmm, what's a good way to say this? It's sneaky how bad it is. Uh, first things first, you know, GM released this vehicle uh, basically at peak old GM to new GM, financial collapse, bankruptcy, all that stuff. There was a lot riding on this vehicle to make it a more profitable platform. Uh, this would have been what the, is this the Theta? cars theta architecture or is this the lambda i always get confused which i think lambda is the bigger one so this one might be theta but anyway uh you know a lot was riding on this the, the equinox previous to this you know had sold surprisingly well they did the pontiac version the torrent uh the, these these crossovers just kind of showed up one day and they seemed to be meeting people's needs so this next version that came out in 09 uh obviously had a little bit more pressure put upon it because gas prices were going up uh the economy was tanking uh gm really needed a home run and surprisingly these were a big hit uh i remember seeing promotions for uh pricing and sales incentives and all these other things and i remember seeing tons and tons and tons and tons of these things out on the road and you still do to some extent today um but it seems to have really depended on when you purchased it uh the first few years of this car are notoriously unreliable the 2.4 liter ecotech engine that's under the hood uh, and many of them is prone to pretty catastrophic failures uh sorry as i pull out my notes here to make sure i've got all of the bad stuff that's going on uh let's see what we got here uh piston rings that lead to excessive oil consumption as much as one quart per 1000 miles timing chains wear excessively and camshaft solenoids are known to fail uh some of these have gotten to the point where there are cracks uh, and the cylinder blocks because they overheat. Uh, basically, these things are an absolute nightmare to keep on the road. And, you know, here's the other thing is that this is a car that's going to be sitting on, you know, a local used car lot here in Michigan. Because, again, there's a lot of them floating around for four to six grand. You're going to drive it for a year. You have no idea how well it was maintained. You have no idea if some of those parts were replaced. Uh, and they're going to break because apparently they also break pretty often, whether you fix them or not. And it's going to cost you another four dollars to $6,000 to replace an engine or uh, do the work necessary to rebuild the thing because uh, something else came apart. And in the end, you know, you're saddled with $12,000 worth of Equinox that's worth less than the dirt it's driving across. And that is a really bad thing uh the other thing that i've i've heard people talk about is how poorly uh the underbodies were uh coated out of the factory uh they were not treated very well and because of that these things rust apart completely so there's issues with suspension components and with frame bits and bobs and living here in the salty wintry north uh you know that makes these things increasingly unsafe if they're not uh kept in running order if they're not parked wet you know, as the, as the saying would goes. Really, you know, the other thing, too, is that this car was the start of the mess that we're in today with the auto, auto industry, where GM had developed a vehicle using a bunch of off-the-shelf parts that fit a size and shape that was becoming popular. Uh, you know, I can't blame them for making a shitload of money off of a product that was, by all intents and purposes, good enough. Um, but at the same time, it also kind of preyed upon not so great situations to begin with. You know, you had people who would have had, you know, maybe they had like an 07 or an 08 Malibu. They're coming in for their two-year service. Uh, they're finding out that, you know, that thing's got to have a little bit of work done. It's going to not cost a ton but because you know, it's under warranty. But then they go, hey, you know, you could trade in your Malibu um, right now. We'll give you this much. You can roll some of that negative equity, not much, into this uh, Equinox, and you know it's easier to get into. It's got all-wheel drive. It's going to be better in the snow, and so people 
pulled the trigger. And that's where most of these sales came from is that, you know, people were sold these new cars with initially, I would assume, no intention of going into the dealership to buying one. And they just kept rolling off the lot over and over and over again. And soon, you know, your sister had one and then your aunt had one and then your grandma had one. And it's just insane how these things moved. I, I, I can recall one day driving home from work. Uh, this probably would have been in 2012 or 13. And driving by the local Chevy dealership, and that would have been uh, Berger Chevy on 28th Street in Grand Rapids, one of the biggest Chevy dealerships in the country. And they had what felt like two-thirds of the lot was covered in Equinox. Now, of course, that's hyperbole just a little bit, but like the whole row, almost a block worth of cars parked alongside the street were just Equinoxes. And they had all the balloons and lights and stickers and whatever else telling you about how cheap these are going to be to get. You get GM family financing, you get all these special deals. And, you know, truth of the matter was GM was giving you deals to take them off their hands as well. I mean, I remember not even a couple years ago how you would have 15, 20, 25% taken off the top just by GM let alone whatever negotiations you might be able to do through a dealership. And it was just insane where these things were going. But you're still buying a ticking time bomb when it came to reliability, when it came to performance, when it came to so many other things. And here's the other part about the Equinox, is that you get inside it, and it's just dreadful. It's absolutely dreadful. Like, I remember defending it at the time because I was a stupid kid who grew up in a GM family who wanted to defend the hard work that GM was doing. Uh, but looking back on it now, the material quality was simply atrocious. It was without a doubt one of the worst modern GM vehicles that I've been in. Uh, hard plastics, brittle plastics. Uh, it looked visually... Mm, I wish you could see my face as I say this word. Mm, okay, I guess. Uh, you know, if you're sitting in the back row and couldn't get up close to see where the materials are at, it would have been fine. But, you know, day-to-day -day use, just what a penalty box. And it's, again, another instance where if I was going to pull, you know, something from the car wizard on YouTube, because you didn't pay that extra grand or two for a Toyota RAV4 or for a Toyota Highlander, you know, you're going to pay a much greater cost way down the road because of the kind of repairs that go into it. And it's just, what a nightmare vehicle. And, you know, here's the other thing. It's not just the Equinox. It's also the GMC Terrain that's based on the same chassis. Uh, they're equally as bad from what I understand uh, in terms of reliability. And it's kind of shocking to some extent that there hasn't been a class action suit with the kind of problems that these things have. But I think what it really boils down to is, you know, those engines had to get quite a few miles on them before they start detonating. And, you know, now that we're 10 plus years from when it came out, I think a lot of people maybe kind of expect that. But it's, it's just shocking to think that a car that was so important that came out of really a critical part in GM's history... Uh, you know, dragged the reputation of Chevrolet to some extent back, you know, 20, 30 years. Because, you know, a car built in 1980 wasn't expected to go more than 120 to 150,000 miles. Uh, these days, if a car doesn't go 200,000 miles, uh, that is a pretty big red flag, I would think, for most car makers these days. Uh, but this thing, you know, if it's barely making it 100,000 miles on one engine... Uh, that's just inexcusable. And, you know, it's, again, absolutely one of the worst cars from this era. Now, the last of the bad cars that I wanted to talk about uh, is one that I mentioned in yesterday's episode in the disappointments section uh, because its platform mate was also the top disappointment of this inner recession period. And uh, for this one, it is the uh, Dodge Dart. That would be the 2013 to 2016 Dodge Dart. So we got four model years worth of car uh, that amounted to basically nothing. Uh, it's important to remember that when Dodge was getting ready to release the car in 2012, uh, the Chevy Cruze had already shown up, the Ford Focus had already landed, both of those cars had been on sale in other markets across the world for at least a year or two at that point, and the Dart was 
meant to be this first big strike by FCA as a company to uh, build, what do you want to call it, like a homogeneous product, something that was, uh, you know, a combination of Italian engineering and American design or whichever way you want to spin that to fit your narrative uh, to be, you know, the first great FCA product. And in the end, you know, it definitely suffered a lot from that process. So uh, the Focus, you know, being developed in Europe, being built in Europe primarily, they eventually they ended up building them in Detroit, if my memory serves correctly, at Flat Rock Assembly. Uh, they, you know, built a great car. It had a world-class reputation. Of course, there was the power shift transmission debacle, which we'll talk about tomorrow uh, when we talk about some different trends and things that emerged in this era. Uh, the Cruise, on the other hand, I, it was a car that was developed for the Korean market initially, uh, went to Europe, and then eventually got sent to the United States. And as much as I mm, complain about the Dodge dart not getting the attention that deserves and more on that in a second uh the cruise didn't either but at the same time chevrolet at the very least developed the cruise into several different things uh that it definitely didn't need to be but they still did it and gm never over promised and under delivered so you know i can't really fault them there too much but these were two cars that came out at a time when the civic was particularly weak uh the corolla was particularly weak uh the centra basically didn't exist uh for the last 15 years in the marketplace and you know they these two cars basically ran away with the show i mean the focus in particular was pretty much the gold star standard for new compact cars i think up until recently and it's when that power shift transmission debacle really started gaining steam that you know things really got out of hand uh the cruise you know continued to slide but the dart i think had a lot of promise and delivered some parts of what it had promised uh but it's the disappointment and it's the way it was killed that just hurts me to no end so the car comes out end of 2012 is a 2013 model uh it's based on that same alfa romeo derived chassis that was underneath a bunch of jeeps a bunch of other dodge and chrysler vehicles uh the dart was kind of meant to be a tweener sized vehicle so it was a little bit bigger than your typical uh compact sedan but it wasn't quite as big as a midsize uh and so you were basically going into the Dodge Dart going, hey, I want a little more legroom in the back. I want a little more space across the front. And truth be told, I thought the interior of the Dodge Dart was a pretty okay place to be. It was comfortable. It was very spacious. There was lots of headroom. Uh, you know, the material quality inside was pretty all right, all things considered. If you've been in a modern Jeep, you have an idea of what the quality would have been like in a Dodge Dart. And it included a lot of really interesting design details that uh, I thought were particularly exciting. It had a really great Uconnect touchscreen in the center dash. Uh, it had this little storage compartment under the front passenger seat that I thought was really clever. Uh, the racetrack taillights on the back of the car really stood out really well, really made the car look expensive, especially in some of the higher trims. And depending on which version you got, uh, you know, you, I thought you got a pretty decent amount of equipment for the price. And I think that's really the, one of the other key takeaways is that there was a pretty big gamut between a baseline uh, Dart SXT up to a top trim GT or Limited. And, you know, the Limited and the GT got, you know, some different engine and transmission choices. It got some different uh, packaging things later in its life that I think made it ultimately a pretty okay car. But there's still the other things that made it particularly bad. So first year, 2013, uh, the Dart was kind of kicked out the door as fast as possible. So they had the uh, engine options were pretty limited. Basically, there was the 2.0-liter uh, inline-four. It was part of the Tiger Shark series. Uh, that series still lives on in many Jeep vehicles today with a 2.4-liter configuration. Uh, but the 2.0-liter didn't make a lot of horsepower, made not enough torque, uh, and was meant to be basically a fleet special vehicle that, you know, you sell on price and you just keep the cars moving. Uh, the other engine option was the 1.6 liter turbocharged 
twin air or multi-air sorry i think it's the multi-air engine uh from the fiat 500 abarth uh which made less horsepower i believe on paper than what the two liter did but had significantly more torque and was meant to be the top trim engine uh the standard gearbox choice was i believe a six-speed automatic there was also a six-speed uh manual and then there was a six-speed dual clutch transmission that was designed to be paired with the 1.6 liter turbo uh but there were some delays with the dual clutch and then when it came out it was horrifically unreliable uh the thing was gobbling up clutches and gearboxes basically off the dealer lot uh they were not tuned correctly uh and the rollout for that transmission ended up getting curtailed back significantly and i think ultimately by 20 14 or 15 uh they ended up pulling the transmission altogether uh the larger uh sorry i'm getting mixed up here where i'm at uh so in that little run of engines and transmissions there were also a bunch of different trim levels you get so like i said base sxt and then there was the rally package which was basically an sxt with some sporty trim things getting a few other little extras there was the limited was the middle one and then i believe the gt was the top trim model uh, that got all the sporty bits the bigger engine the bigger better transmissions all that stuff and you know you could get a base trim dart for i think they started at like 16 grand or something like that but like a fully loaded one was going to start knocking on the door of 30 and the weird part was is that depending on what you were looking for uh they were really hard to find uh we have a very large fiat chrysler dealership here in just outside of grand rapids and they're one of the only ones in the area that had a selection of dodge darts and i remember going down this probably would have been 2014 uh to talk to a guy about buying a dart because i was very interested in getting a focus or a dart uh at that point in time and i was like hey look i'm looking for a rally with the 1.6 liter turbo and the six-speed manual and the guy's like well um we can look at and see if we can find one for you we don't have one here uh let me go double check and he let me know that there were basically no dealerships in the state of michigan that had one of those cars um when they might even have to go out past chicago or indianapolis to see if they could find one uh he assured me that they existed but basically said you're not going to find one and he handed me the keys to a limited and sent me on my way now one little bit about the car and how it drove in a moment but the key thing here is that fiat chrysler and this is still something that they have an issue with today uh they had this we're going to use the word formula to determine uh what kind of cars go where and when uh dealerships don't order cars for the market that they're in they're not telling them hey we get a lot of customers asking for green hey we get a lot of customers asking for black hey we need more gt trims than limited trims and we need more rally trims than sxts or whatever else uh fiat chrysler just sends you things that they think are going to sell and so as a dealership you get all of these cars that are not at all what you want for maybe for grand rapids maybe these cars that are here would have sold better in lansing and so you're going to spend the next couple of days weeks months working with this dealership in Lansing and this dealership in Novi and this dealership uh, in, you know, Chicagoland and this dealership in, outside of Indianapolis. And you're going to move all of these cars around when Fiat could have spent the time to put the right car in the right place with the right window sticker for the market that they were in and saved everybody the trouble. And this is still something that they have a problem with, with Renegades, with uh, Cherokees with Wranglers with Ram pickup trucks Chrysler minivans all of it it's all terrible how FCA does this kind of stuff and they've gotten a bit of a slap on the wrist for the way that they kind of run some of these things uh, but it sounds like there's not really much of a chance of any of this thing changing uh, but the guy was like hey you know if you really want this car you can order it but it's going to be three or four months and to me it was less about getting the car that i wanted it was more about driving the version of the car that i wanted to experience because you couldn't find one with the stick 
you couldn't find one with a 1.6 liter turbo and you couldn't find one in the rally trim and that was incredibly frustrating so i get handed the keys to unlimited he's like hey go ahead and take it out around here in granville uh, and let me know what you think and i took it around and you know the seats were comfortable like i said the interior had lots of space as this guy who's six feet tall and 200 pounds it was appropriately sized compared to a Focus that felt a little bit smaller or a Cruise that feels, for whatever reason, exceptionally narrow. Uh, but the, the Dart felt appropriate. Uh, it rode pretty well. It was fairly quiet. It had a decent amount of technology in it. Um, but in the end, you know, because I couldn't get the engine I want with the transmission that I wanted, uh, nothing ended up happening and you know that was the case for a lot of cars back then because i quote unquote had money to buy it but i was very unwilling to pull the trigger on much of anything at that point in time uh so you know the dart came out 2012 or uh 2013 however it worked out sorry 2012 was a 2013 model uh they had a bad year they fixed it up freshened it up a little bit cleansed some of the packaging issues uh for the 2014 model i think they ended up dropping the dual clutch transmission for 2014 uh so basically you were left with a six-speed manual or an automatic uh they moved the engine trims around a little bit so you could you know only get the two liter in some ones and the 1.6 liter in others um it really kind of turned into this weird little mess and eventually it got to the point where the 1.6 liter engine was only available i think in the aero trim uh which was another riff on the sxt package that was meant just for fuel economy um but yeah it was it was just not going well and whether it was mismanagement on the end of fiat who was very involved with the design and engineering and execution of the car or chrysler with not managing their dealer network and the manufacturing of it i i don't know what it was but uh 2014 chrysler did their uh five-year plan uh presentation it's something that i think is a really novel way of approaching the management of a business like that where they uh lay out a plan for what they want to do with each of their different brands talking about you know whether it's a new product or a product revision or some kind of new development that they're working on it basically gives you an idea of where things are going to track it lets your investors know what you're doing um and you know kind of democratizes i don't know if that's quite the right word to say that but it, it makes the approach to running a car company a little more available to everyone and so in that product plan uh, Dodge had said that by 2016 they were going to uh, come out with basically a Dart Point 2 uh, that was going to be significantly revised uh, based on what they already had. So whether it was new technology in the infotainment, uh, restyled front end, back end, other things, it was going to keep it in line with where the company was moving. Just the same, they were going to add a new model. Uh, they were going to add a hatchback variation to the Dart because they were seeing that a lot of people were very interested in the Focus hatchback, which I think at one point in time, it wasn't outselling the sedan, but it was doing significantly better numbers than what the sedan uh, was expected to do. Or excuse me, the hatch was expected to do. And uh, everyone started freaking out. And that's why we eventually got a cruise hatchback and the Golf got more attention and so on and so forth. So there was going to be a Dart hatchback, which I found particularly exciting at the time. Uh, but the other big deal was that Chrysler was going to spend a significant amount of time and money creating a high-performance version of the Dart uh, that everybody, I think, universally agrees at this point should have had from the outset. So they were planning on a Dart SX, or excuse me, S, oh my gosh, I almost call it an SVT, an SRT4, uh, bring back, you know, the same lineage that was in the Caliber SRT4, the Neon SRT4 and its various guises, uh, that, you know, brings bring some excitement and attention to a car that really desperately needed it. And that, here's what I, I, I find particularly interesting, I guess, about the SRT4 uh, Dart, is that so much of what they were promising to put in that car eventually became what went inside a platform made of the Dart, which was the uh, Jeep Cherokee. So uh, Chrysler was saying that it was going to get an all-new 2.0-liter turbocharged inline-four, 
that would have been mated to a nine-speed automatic or a six-speed manual transmission, and it would have ran power through an all-wheel drive system, uh, very similar to what was in some Jeep products at the time. Uh, it, it basically paved the way for the engine that ended up going in the, uh, what is it, the Alfa Romeo Guglia and the Stelvio. Um, it's the same two-liter in the Grand Cherokee, or not the Grand Cherokee, the regular Cherokee. Uh, I believe that two-liter is also in the Jeep Wrangler at this point. Uh, so, you know, that engine, now that we know, now we're at in 2020, we can say, hey, you know, that was a pretty good engine. And that would have been really cool in a car the size of a Dart. We know that that four-wheel drive system is pretty capable and relatively robust and probably would have been able to handle uh, the power coming out of that engine fairly well. The nine-speed automatic, uh, which wasn't just promised for the SRT4, but I believe the whole lineup, and actually it may not have been in the SRT4, might have been manual only, but they did say that nine-speed was coming, it was going to help transform the car. And the other thing that they also said in that presentation is that they were going to add the 2.4-liter Tyco Shark engine uh, from their other vehicles uh, to just make the car a little more quick and normal and competitive uh, in a time when, you know, 180 horsepower uh, was not really enough for some of these cars in that era. And in the end, you know, that presentation happened 2014, 2015, things started looking shaky, and by the end of 2015, uh, Sergio Marchionne, who uh, was the head of FCA uh, before he passed away, he said that uh, they're pulling the plug on small cars at FCA. No more development, no more manufacturing, no more attention from them because it's just not worth it. And we talked about that in the previous episode where, you know, ultimately Sergio was right. Uh, ultimately, uh, it was a smart move. It let them refocus their attention on Ram and Jeep and make them the powerhouses that they are today. But at the same time, that has meant that Chrysler and Dodge have suffered significantly from a lack of new vehicles and new developments uh, in their lineups to keep them relevant compared to so many other brands out there. And I, just like with the 200, I firmly believe that with a little more attention, it could have been a significantly better vehicle. But with the Dart, it was so compromised from the outset that I think more attention, more money, more development could have made it better. But I don't know if ever if it ever would have been better than the Ford Focus. I don't know if it ever would have been better than a Civic, especially after 2016. I don't know if it ever would have been better uh, than the new... Corolla. Uh, because here's the other thing is that Fiat Chrysler likes to keep platforms around for way too long, continue to add things to it, and just call it good enough. And the way that the Dart was in 2013 uh, was not would not be good enough now in 2020 uh, to be competitive because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a stiff enough chassis. It didn't have the own manners that were necessary. It didn't have the refinement that was necessary. And really, it just betrayed a car that in some instances was eh, pretty okay, and in other ones, you know, just were downright bad. And that is why I am considering the Dart one of the worst cars of the era from 20, or 2008 to 2020. So, anyway, after a short little break, we'll talk about some of the vehicles that I think are the best from that era. Well, kicking things off with what is the best of the era, unsurprisingly, I think a lot of these vehicles are going to focus a lot more on what's out now versus what's out, you know, better part of 10 years ago. Uh, so the first ones I wanted to mention, and these are vehicles that I have talked about at length on the main part of the Salvage Title podcast, and that is the uh, Kissing Cousins, the 2020 Kia Telluride and the 2020 Hyundai Palisade. Now, these vehicles came out at the very, very, very end of this era, but they are admittedly, I think, the best example of what this era has been. Uh, it has been the ascension of Hyundai and Kia as brands to contend with and worry about in this market. Uh, this has been, I think, their poster childs for what it means to listen to where the market is going and what it means to, you know, put in the work to show that you give a damn uh, in this segment. 
I, I honestly think, you know, if you're going to be like, hey, I want to spend $50,000 all in, out the door, however you want to say that, what is the best vehicle I can get for my money? And I have to say, to some extent, I would be hard-pressed to choose anything other than the Kia Telluride and the Hyundai Palisade. Dollar for dollar, size for size, shape for shape, <laughs> I, I genuinely don't think there's much that you can do that's better than these things. Uh, yes, they are full-size, family, three-row crossovers. Yes, they are the thing that I hate more than anything in this world, uh, but they look really good. Uh, they fit really well. They are packaging perfected. They are trim perfected. They are uh, technology perfected. Like, these things just ooze... I, I, I don't even know what to call it. It's just like they just hit the nail on the head so perfectly that it's just incredible to think 20 years ago, I would have been, well, I guess it wouldn't have been 20, 21 years ago, I would have been in Orlando, Florida, seeing one of the first Hyundai and Kia dealerships up close in my life, laughing at the prospect of these Korean car companies coming into a state like Michigan and being able to build a car that would rival the Chevy Malibu, the Chevy Impala, the Ford Taurus, anything like that. It was unthinkable. But now, 21 years later, going, these are without a doubt some of the best cars on the road today. Uh, it, it's just absolutely incredible. And the other weird thing about these cars is that Kia and Hyundai are selling them at a price premium. Uh, right now, they can't make enough of these things fast enough to meet the demand in the market. Uh, and as such, these things are not getting any discounts. You are not getting any dealer discounts in many cases. You are either paying MSRP or you are paying uh, some kind of added sticker uh, adjustment to these things. Uh, and for a Kia and a Hyundai, uh, that is just unthinkable. I mean, even like three years ago to say to me, hey, guess what? There's going to be a car coming out in the near future where people are going to pay over sticker price for it from Hyundai and Kia. I would have laughed in their face. There was no way this ever could have happened uh, in any way, shape, or form uh, in 2020. And yet, here we are. Uh, so, I mean, what are you getting? You know, you're getting, a, like I said, a full-size family crossover, three rows. Uh, you're getting, what is it, a standard 3.8 liter V6. Uh, I believe it's an eight-speed automatic. Uh, the Hyundai Palisade is built in Korea. The Kia Telluride is built down south. I think it's Alabama. Uh, these things are basically the same underneath. Same engine, same transmission. Uh, I believe the Kia Telluride has a slightly stiffer suspension. Uh, it's also got a little more tuning in one of its four-wheel drive systems to be a little more capable off-road. Um, in the Palisade, it's definitely tuned to be more of a day-to-day cruiser workhorse vehicle uh kind of think of it sort of as a a step beyond the hyundai entourage minivan that is no longer with us uh that's the best way i can think of it where you know i mean you load it up with kids you load it up with equipment you're going on a road trip or you're taking the kids to all their different practices or you know you're just towing a small boat or watercraft uh it's it's two vehicle two vehicles that are right-sized uh, by by every sense of measure. And uh, I, I, I just, I can't believe that these things are as good as they are this year. And, you know, I, I think it's a good way to kind of bookend this era of cars with two things that are undoubtedly so good. Now, the next vehicle I wanted to talk about is one that I have said and still maintain on Twitter uh, that it is the best car that you can buy right now. Uh, I think this is the best car, not just including, you know, small normal things, not just including astronomically expensive things. Uh, this is the best car that you can buy full stop no matter what price point you're shopping at. Uh, you're not going to find a better thing. And that is the Lexus LC500 and Lexus LC500H. Now, this is a car that is not obviously meant for everyone. One, because it's a Lexus. Two, because it's a Grand Tour. And three, because it costs over $100,000. Uh, but, again, if you're not talking strictly about price, 
if you're not talking strictly about type of vehicle, if you're not talking strictly about whatever, I, I just don't think there is a better car out there. I mean, this is a car that Lexus really didn't need to build at any at any stretch of measure. Uh, they had the LFA. The LFA was also another car that they did not need to build, but it was an engineering exercise. Uh, it was a master stroke in you know, not only engine building, but carbon, uh, carbon fiber manufacturing. And, you know, Lexus has paved the way for a lot of companies in thinking about some of those kinds of things. Uh, but the LC500 is meant to be sort of kind of a follow-up to the LFA in a weird way, but also kind of not. Um, it was a step beyond where the RC is. The RC, of course, took over from the IS, uh, 300 coupe that was available for a while. Um, but the, the RC is a weird size, and it's too heavy, and it doesn't perform quite right. So the LC ends up becoming this purpose-built luxury vehicle that still isn't astronomically expensive. Uh, I mean, you know, as me, as someone of reasonable means, you know, I could never dream of spending, you know, $100,000, $120,000 on a luxury car. But at the same time, it's not impossible to think that there would be a time in my life where I could afford to spend $100,000 on a car. Um, this Lexus is, without a doubt, one of the nicest things I've ever sat in. It is, without a doubt, one of the nicest things I've ever looked at. No, I haven't driven it. I heard they're very good to drive. <laughs> I imagine they're very good to drive. Uh, but, uh, I, yeah, you know, you, you, you think about in your mind some of the greatest car designs to ever hit the street. I think everybody kind of universally agrees uh, the Jaguar E-Type is one of the best, if not the best, to ever hit the road. Uh, I think a lot of arguments can be made in favor of the Ferrari 250 GTO. Uh, you could also make some very, very good arguments about the Citroën DS that I would definitely be there screaming in someone's face. Uh, but I think the LC500 is maybe that four horse, fourth horseman in that group. Uh, this car is shockingly well-proportioned. It is curvy in all of the places that it needs to be. Uh, it is well-sculpted on the exterior, sure, but on the interior as well. Uh, it has a level of craftsmanship and detail to it that is beyond reproach. <laughs> I mean, to get a car that is made as well as this, you're probably going to have to spend three times as much to get anything that's even close. And even then, I don't even know if it's going to be the same because the folks at Lexus, and to a greater extension Toyota, it always shows when they give a shit. It shows when they want to prove something. It shows when they want to make a thing that is truly one of the best cars in the world. And the LC500 is it, you know. Thinking of something like a Bentley Continental GT, that's maybe a good competitor for this car. The Bentley Continental GT, you know, they're nice. They're great. They're Bentleys. They're wonderful. But, you know, they're $300,000. And for something that is that size and that weight and has a lot of performance, yeah, to some extent, I think you're getting your money's worth, but you're still saddled with some parts bin, Volkswagen, Audi, bits and bobs that, you know, ultimately don't feel or look that nice. And there are some carryover bits in the LC500 that come from, you know, other Lexuses and to a greater extent, some Toyotas. Uh, but there's also a lot of stuff in that car that's custom made just for it. And, you know, the seats are one, uh, the door panels, the dashboard. Uh, the, the thing that I always point out to a lot of people who haven't been in one is the door handles. So you, you get in the car, you shut the door, there's this little door handle um, that I can only describe as being, you know, about the size and shape of a large thumb. Toyota didn't need to design a door handle that looked that nice for one. I mean, these are these are things that are probably cut out of solid blocks of aluminum. They did not need to take the time to engineer this little teeny tiny piece that you're going to yeah, use every time you drive it. But they could have just pulled the door handle out of a RC whatever. You know, they could have pulled a door handle out of another uh Lexus LS. They could have done something completely different and off the shelf that probably would have saved them 
tens of thousands of dollars in engineering and probably would save them, you know, thousands of dollars in the cost of building one of these cars. Again, a little bit of hyperbole. But it's just such a beautiful piece of design and engineering that it ultimately sums up my entire feeling about the car. Toyota just did not need to make this car this good. They did not need to make something that's this beautiful. And what's always amazed me about the LC500 is that Lexus, at least in every auto show I've been to, that there has been an LC500 present at, they really want people to see it up close and touch it and sit in it and get an idea of what this car is. And it is just great. I think it's wonderful that they are approaching it in this way, where, you know, if you saw one parked on the street and you weren't into cars, you know, you might think it's something else, but then you see that big L badge and you realize that it's a Lexus and you see just the craftsmanship and design in this thing. It's, it's just incredible. And now there's a convertible version coming out and, you know, Lexus is seeming to be pretty committed to this car, even though sales have been pretty small. And, you know, I think I've seen more of these at car shows than I have at anywhere else on the street. I think I've seen maybe two on the road. One was white, and I can't remember what the other one. I think it was silver. So, boring color choices. Uh, they do offer a very nice yellow shade, uh, but Nori Green, without a doubt, is one of the best car, car colors ever, uh, let alone being on one of the most beautiful cars ever. Uh, it is just, it summarizes and tightens this thing up in a little bit. And we didn't even talk about the powertrain. Holy cow. Okay. So this car, the LC500, you get two options. So you got the 500H, uh, which uses the uh, V6 hybrid from the LS500H, um, which, you know, I mean, if you're into saving the environment and you want to get something that is, I think that's the cheaper of the two, if I remember correctly, it's still got some performance chops, but, you know, if you're just looking for a car to cruise to the golf course to make a visual statement and have something that, you know, is going to save you on gas and probably ultimately end up being the more reliable of the two vehicles, uh, that would be the way to go. Uh, but the 5-liter V8, which also came from the Lexus LS, uh, is the one to get. This is the same 5-liter V8 that's been around for a while uh, between Toyota and Lexus. Uh, this engine, I think, produces 400 and some odd something, something or others. Uh, it's enough. It's more than enough. And I think that's really also the main takeaway with this car is that Toyota and Lexus used a lot of restraint in making this what it is. They didn't go out and say, hey, you know, we're going to race it against a Corvette or they're not going to go, hey, we're going to take on the 911. Uh, they went, you know what? there's going to be people who want to buy a really nice, comfortable, quiet two-seat sports car that can get a little sideways if you're out on a track and it can, you know, bomb down some back roads if you really, really want it to. But in the end, it's going to be quiet and comfortable and you and your significant other can take it downtown to get dinner and the valet can get in it and not think it's this insane spaceship. It's just gonna work and it's gonna go and it's gonna be beautiful for all the time that it is in your possession and you can take care of it it'll be there and it'll probably turn over every time you go out to start it too and that's always another important thing is that you know dollar for dollar pound for pound compare a base 911 Carrera to one of these Lexuses give it a couple of years down the road, I think the Lexus will probably be worth more money. Long term, the Porsche might too, especially if you get it in a weird configuration. Uh, but this Lexus, I think, is truly a special car. This, this is one of the cars that I would cut part of my finger off to go, to go drive. Like, it is just one of the most incredible, amazing, beautiful, I'm sounding like Lady Gaga, things out on the road today. And it is without a doubt one of the best vehicles to come out within the past 12 years. Uh, they really did a good job. They timed it correctly. They did their homework. And, you know, it just really, really shows. So, finally, after speaking in crazy tongues to discuss a vehicle, uh, we're to the what I think is the best car of 2008-2020. And uh, it's one that I have also a bit of experience with, and that is... Uh, the 2016 through present Honda Civic. Now, we talked about the previous generation Civic before this, the ninth generation one, uh, in the disappointment section, just being an utter mess of a vehicle. 
but the 10th generation Civic ultimately represents a combination of all the lessons that Honda had learned about why that particular car was so bad and why this one needed to be so good. Uh, this is the first Civic I think we've had in a little while that has been the same across the board in all markets across the planet. Uh, this is the first Civic that we've had in a while that has been co-developed between uh, Honda of Japan, Honda Europe, Honda North America to meet different market demands. Uh, this is the first Honda Civic that we've had in a while that is sold in more than two body styles. And this is the first Honda Civic that we've had in a while that's been sold in a Type R configuration. Uh, well, it's the only one that's been sold in the Type R configuration in the United States, but it's one of the most recent ones. I think it's been, what, more than a decade since we had the last one? Uh, the Civic is really good. And I mean that in a way that, you know, belittles a lot of cars that cost not just tens of thousands of dollars more, but hundreds of thousands of dollars more. Uh, this Civic is by all intents and purposes, uh, a car that was designed for the people. And I don't necessarily mean that necessarily the Volkswagen-y type way where, you know, everyone needs a car to be able to carry them somewhere. Uh, this is a car that's designed for people who care about what they're driving and they care about the engineering that goes behind it and they care about uh, the effort that, you know, driving should be. And I haven't driven many Civics in my lifetime. I've driven several, you know, I, I've driven enough to know which generations I prefer is maybe a good way to put it. Uh, this is definitely one of the best, and it's definitely one of the best since the late 90s. Uh, I don't know if I would call it the best Civic ever. That That's another discussion for another episode, but uh, this one just really ticks a lot of the right boxes, and sometimes I often wonder uh, if that's because this one is so close to what the Accord used to be. Um, in terms of size and shape, this thing's pretty similar to where the Accord was about 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, the, I remember driving uh, the Accord from that era and thinking, you know, this is pretty much perfect. Uh, there's plenty of room in the front. I could adjust the seat and sit behind myself and have a decent amount enough, uh, or a decent amount of leg room, plenty of headroom. It had the great uh, K24 engine, uh, the six-speed automatic that was in it, or I guess it was a five at the time, uh, was really great. Like just overall, you know, that Accord was the bee's knees. But with the Civic being so close in terms of size, uh, it it reminded me a lot of that car and. In the end, you know, this Civic benefits from a stiffer chassis that is designed to be much more sporty than the outgoing model at the time. Uh, this Civic debuted two different engines that were of a unique design that uh, were the first to leave the VTEC platform behind. Uh, VTEC Bro is really, honestly, no more. And the 2.0-liter engine, you know, I think might still have VTEC. I might have gotten this wrong now. Apologies if I got my stuff mixed up, but uh, I know the 1.5 liter turbo is not a VTEC engine, and uh, the 2 liter that I drove, you know, it was fine. Like, it, it didn't groan. It didn't wail. It didn't, you know, make all of the bad noises. It made the appropriate Honda noises, and uh, the transmission that was in it, the one I was in, was a CVT, so fortunately I haven't driven the little uh, six-speed unit, uh, but the, the CVT was fine. It was good enough. It, it simulated gears in a way that worked. Uh, it sounds like they have been fairly reliable for Honda for the most part. Uh, the only complaint about the Civic, I think, was just the first-year models. Uh, the two-liter ones had some... I think it was a piston ring issue and so they recalled a bunch and fitted them with new engines and they've been good to go ever since um the trim levels on the car and maybe the one sore point that i have it's something that's been uh fixed now by the time we're in 2020 but the initial ones uh honda really touted a lot of their technological prowess with this car um so you got a pretty adequate infotainment system standard on the lower trim LX model, but you had to get up to the EX and above to get Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. And if I remember correctly, if you bought the EX at the time, you couldn't get the stick. You had to get uh, the CVT. And that was always a huge frustration because it's like, you know, hey, I want this tech thing. 
and I want a stick. And then it was another thing where like you couldn't get Honda safety sense on certain things and certain trims. So it's like the car ended up losing a lot of the safety qualities that it should have had. Again, packaging stuff that's fixed now, but at least initially it was incredibly frustrating. Uh, the other weird thing was that uh, the hatchback wasn't available at the start. Uh, the hatchback came out the second year of the car in 2017. Uh, the hatchback introduced the new sport trim to the lineup. And the sport trim kind of sat between the LX and the EX model, uh, adding a few features, but, you know, really just being kind of a visual upgrade. Uh, but that still lacked Android Auto and Apple CarPlay support uh, in 2017, even though it was an up level from the LX. And I thought that was an insane move to make. Uh, the Coupe eventually joined as well, I think in 2017. Uh, and it, you know... It just, it, text, it ticks all the boxes for these cars. Like, they are the right size, they're the right shape, they're the right price. And if you want to spend money and get crazy and get a Type R, you can do that too. But if you also want to spend twenty three grand and get a pretty nice car that's going to last you 10 years or more, uh, the Civic is, I think, for the most part, unbeatable in the segment. Um, the only car that I think comes close these days is the new Toyota Corolla. Uh, the Corolla is on an all-new chassis. Basically, Honda made this car. They made it near enough perfect. Toyota went, oh shit, we gotta actually do something. And they came out with a new Corolla. It's based, again, on a global platform. So the same Corolla is sold in the UK, is sold in the United States, sold in Australia, so on and so forth. Uh, it got a revised engine. It got an actually good CVT from Toyota. Uh, it got... A whole new infotainment suite uh, at least initially when the car first launched it had a weird situation where there was no apple carplay no android auto then it had apple carplay and no android auto and now it has all of it and i think maybe i would buy the corolla over the civic if he asked me today tuesday june 9th 2020 but i really could go either way sometimes like you know the honda civic is just so good it the ride is not too harsh, but it corners really well. You know, the styling is aggressive, but it's not offensively aggressive. Uh, you know, there's plenty of seat in the back. There's a huge trunk. If you get the hatchback, you get even more space. Uh, even the coupe is, you know, appropriately proportioned compared to the sedan. It just works. It works on every single level. And, you know, a few little cheap bits of plastic in the interior I can forgive for a driving experience that's as good as that. And in the end, you know, I mean, that's just the way Honda has done things with the Civic. And it was just nice to have a return to greatness with this particular car. And ultimately, it ended up signifying a big change for Honda on the whole. I think Europe and Asia have definitely gotten more of the better Hondas as of late. I'm looking at you, Honda Fit, and the new uh, E-City car. But, uh, you know... The new RAV4, or excuse me, not RAV4, CRV is very good. The new Accord was very good after this. The new Pilot, the new Ridgeline, the new Passport are all really quite good. Uh, we're still seeing what the HRV could become. I'm crossing my fingers and toes that we do get the new fit at some point. Honda seems to know, once again, what they want to do. And I think the Civic was their first strike at doing that the right way. And... I found that just really great and really refreshing. And, you know, again, for 23 grand, 25 grand, you can get a really good Civic that drives much, much better than cars that cost twice as much. And that, I think, is something worth celebrating, uh, especially with how bad things were for so many years uh, in this inter-recessionary period. <laughs> Well, that just about wraps up this second episode of this series talking about uh, the inter-recessionary vehicles that were on sale from 2008 to 2020. Um, there were a lot of weird changes in the market, a lot of weird changes when it comes to specific brands, uh, a lot of weird changes when it comes to seemingly everything in this time frame. And in the third episode, which will come out tomorrow, uh, we'll talk about some of those trends and some of those specific vehicles and 
what they meant and perhaps where we're going to go now that, you know, we're in another recession officially. So uh, if you want to listen back to the previous episode, you can uh, search it out on anchor.fm slash salvage title, uh, where you can also find other episodes of the show. We do post them for free on a wide variety of podcasting platforms, including Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, so much more. Uh, so if you like what you hear, make sure you hit subscribe. And uh, if you are interested in what I'm talking about, you know, uh, sharing it is always a good thing as well. So We will see you tomorrow, Wednesday, June 10th, uh, to talk about kind of a bit of a wrap-up for this era. Until next time, we'll see you then.